Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, guys, today we are so excited to have Dr. Chris Longhurst on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Longhurst is the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Digital Officer for UC San Diego out in, I hope it's sunny San Diego right now. Uh, prior to that, he served as the Chief Information Officer at uh, UC San Diego. And prior to that, he was the Chief uh, Medical Information Officer at Stanford. Dr. Longhurst, welcome to the podcast. I'm pleased to be here and uh, excited for our conversation. Yeah, and and like I said, I have to. You're, you're in San Diego. I, is it sunny today? It's very sunny, and I have to say, um, it's actually a little bit too hot for you know long sleeves. Oh man, well we are. Uh, we you know we've had freezing rain and sleet for the past what is it, Jake? Three days. Three days. It's been miserable. And, and and then next week it's going to be in the 60s. This is typical schizophrenic uh, weather in in the mid south, but. Uh, but uh, spring, and, 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 you know, we heard today that uh, uh, Puxatawney Phil saw his, he saw a shadow. So I don't know if we're going to have any reprieve, Jake. No, but, well, the good news is he's usually wrong. Like, I think it's, you know, over 50% of the time he's wrong is, is what it turns out to be. So Okay, so it's <laughs> it's not quite a, a, a coin flip. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh Chris, Dr. Longhurst, uh, once again, welcome to the show. When we have physicians on on the on the program, we we always like to hear about your journey into continuous improvement because most of us, when we started medical school, went through residency, and I understand you're a pediatrician. Um, most of us had no idea that we were going to end up in the roles that we're in now. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Well, thanks for uh, asking about it. Um, and you're absolutely right. I, I went to medical school to become a pediatrician and uh, never envisioned myself in the role that I'm in now or, or most of the previous ones. But um, I can tell you that uh, as a medical student, I remember attending uh, my first delivery on my pediatrics rotation and uh, the baby did great. And after the baby was delivered, I had to go write a delivery room note. And in order to do that, I had to go through mom's chart and literally copy stuff from the paper chart that uh, mom is into the paper chart for the, the baby. And uh, I remember thinking, boy, there's gotta be a better way than this, right? Um, and so I actually took some time off during medical school to uh, pursue a master's degree in health informatics. I uh, stayed at UC Davis because I had some great mentors there. And there was a real focus on applied clinical informatics, meaning sort of at the bedside. I wasn't looking at uh, doing a PhD. I was looking at doing something that was really going to impact patient care. And so I, I came down to Stanford to do my residency training because it has a great children's hospital. And I thought being in the heart of the Silicon Valley would create some opportunities. And that turned out to be true. And so uh, I was just uh, lucky to be the right guy in the right place. When I finished my residency training, the hospital was implementing an electronic health record system. Uh, really with an eye towards improving quality and safety. And this really resonated with me. And so I took a job where I was uh, duly reporting to um, the hospital's first CMIO and to um, the chief quality and patient safety officer, Dr. Paul Sherrick. And 
Paul was a real mentor for me and schooled me in the ways of uh, improvement. Uh, I became an Institute for Healthcare Improvement a devotee, and um, uh, we did a lot of PDSA cycles in our EHR implementation. Because of my graduate school training, we also tried to make it a really evidence-based implementation. And we read a lot of the literature about EHR implementations and what had gone wrong elsewhere. And in fact, uh, during the course of our implementation, a very famous study came out from Pittsburgh Children's showing an increase in mortality on the exact same uh, vendor system that we were in the midst of implementing. Mm. And so you can imagine we all took a deep breath and stood back and tried to understand what had happened. And, so we, we moved forward with our implementation at Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, and uh, uh, we were really relieved when not only did we see the mortality not increase, we published that sort of as a response to the, the Pittsburgh Children's experience and uh, haven't looked back. And as you uh, suggested, you know, this has created the infrastructure for a learning healthcare system, right? So now we've got all this digital data. And we're working on improving workflows and improving the provider and physician experience. Um, and I think this is a really turning point in um, the history of our field because with the advent of new AI technologies like ChatGPT, you know, we're seeing the ability to use this data in, in ways that are really going to make it um, easier to improve care and improve the, the patient and physician experience. So it's an exciting time in the field for sure. No, that's great. And, you know, Again, thank you for coming on. Um, a lot of what you just said resonates with me in, in my role a good bit. And so I'm interested to hear um, how you think through quality improvement and continuous improvement and the EHR. So I don't know if if you've ever gotten a request to help improve you know, the quality or help improve one one safety measure for your hospital by implementing something in the EHR. It, it happens you know, to me almost every other week where there'll be maybe in a safety event and there's the request comes, can we add an alert in the system? We just need so another BPA. Uh, we just need a BPA I mean, to, to fix this problem. Um, but I'd love to hear how you- stop. Right, add another hard stop, another mandatory field. Um, and in a lot of my experience, I, I just haven't seen that actually lead to the outcomes that they, that they were expecting. But uh, talk to us about how you think through how you use, you know, it, it's not just the technology, it's the people in the process and how you view that um, to help, I guess, direct people to you know, better solutions. Jake, uh, it's a common story at every health system. Just give me a hard stop. Make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Um, I, so I'll. I'll um, talk through our, our approach here a little bit, but uh, maybe I'll share a little bit more background first, which is that, you know, after sitting on our hospital quality committee as the CMIO for many years, I came to UC San Diego seven years ago and um, ended up assuming a role not just as the CIO leading IT, but also as the associate chief medical officer leading quality and safety. And in fact, I'm sitting here in the building where we have co-located our information services team with our quality and patient safety teams. And uh, we really try to pair them up tightly because there is very little quality improvement that does not require some type of technology. And yeah. similarly, you know, my philosophy is that just about everything we do from a technology standpoint should be improving quality, whether that's quality of the care we deliver, quality of the patient experience, quality of the provider experience, et cetera. Um, but it becomes a little bit different when you own both sides, right? I own all the quality metrics now, and I have to roll that up to our executive governing body. And so um, we're always looking for opportunities to use the technology to drive those better outcomes 
and eliminate those never events that we don't want happening to our friends and family, let alone our patients. Um, but uh, the, the easy solution people look towards is always, you know, give me a hard stop, give me an alert. I think if you take a step back and you think more about the tenets of quality improvement, it helps to drive some thinking, right? So um, uh, high reliability as a tenant includes things like sensitivity to operations on the front line, right? Well, if you're rolling out BPAs that are overridden 99% of the time, you're not being very sensitive to operations, right? Um, if you wanna deliver highly reliable care, you need to get frontline expertise, you need to understand workflows, right? And that's really the, the, the key is those workflows. If you think about lean process improvement tenants, it's about making it easy to do the right thing all the time. So you talk about hard stops, um, but we do want situations where it's impossible to do the wrong thing. Just yeah. like you can't put the diesel into the gasoline engine, we wanna make it impossible to write a prescription for an overdose in a neonatal patient, right? And so there are places for those hard stops, but I think much more commonly, it's the guided order sets and decision-making that help to drive um, care decisions in a smarter way. Um, we know that just pre-checking order sets is going to drive um, choice of uh, care and orders um, uh, far more commonly upfront without any hard stops, right? And as we think about now introducing things like AI, and how frequently have similar patients uh, had similar orders and which patients have the better outcomes, we're gonna see our technologies evolve rapidly so that we're now recommending and suggesting the right care patterns and care sets and care teams even for the right patients and matching those up. And so um, bringing it back several steps in the workflow to um, guide, to make it easy to do the right thing and then downstream, you want to make it impossible to do the wrong thing. And of course, there's a spectrum of practice in between that the health record won't necessarily help with. And that gets to the next kind of uh, philosophy that I think is really important. Our goal at UC San Diego Health is to become a highly reliable learning health system. Mm. So high reliability is one tenant of delivering high quality care, right? And the Joint Commission and others have been talking about this for years. But a learning health system is another framework particularly for academic medical centers, right? Where not only are you delivering the best practice care, but you're constantly learning from your data so that you can improve your care patterns to deliver even more highly reliable care. And so that has implications around analytics, around analyzing your own outcomes on an ongoing basis. And that learning health system um, concept can then feed back into generating new and better highly reliable care sets that hopefully we'll be sharing, you know, with with the country and uh, other specialists, and uh, so that everybody uh, can benefit from learning healthcare systems. You know, um, Harvey, you mentioned I'm a pediatrician. I'm still practicing seeing babies, and uh, um, I like to look at pediatric oncology as a, a framework because, um, fortunately, only about 5,000 children in the United States get cancer every year, but almost every single child with cancer is on a protocol. Right? And the children's oncology group, it ensures that these protocols are pragmatic trials, so they're constantly evolving. And without new biologics or drugs over the course of 30 years, many diseases like acute leukemia have gone from 20% cure rates to over 90 or 95%, right? And that's mm -hmm. because we learn from every patient at every visit, every time. In contrast, think about adult uh, cancer. 97% of our friends and family get cancer are not on trials, and their care is not informing 
new and better cancer outcomes. Only 3% of cancer uh, patients in the adult population are on clinical trial. We've got to change that. We've got to figure out how we learn from every patient every time. And, and yeah, and, and what type of treatment you're going to get a lot of times depends on where your oncologist trained. Yeah. Were they trained at Hopkins or Vanderbilt or, or Stanford or, or wherever? You know, you, you mentioned when, I guess, when it was Stanford was, was implementing their EHR. You know, you guys, it sounded like y'all, y'all's purpose was to, you know, the purpose of having EHR was to improve quality and safety of your patients. Uh, and, but yet this system in, in Pennsylvania was implementing the same system and they, they had increased pediatric mortality. What, go put you on the spot a little bit. You know, I imagine you're somebody who came, who grew up maybe in the paper world like I did. And, you know, I was well into practice before I ever used an electronic medical record. What, as far as improving quality of care and patient safety, what, what, are the, what are the main things that you think the EMR has done to improve quality and safety for our patients? And on the flip side, what are, what, what are some of the, the negatives that you've seen uh, from the EHR as well? Sure. Great question, Harvey. So first of all, just to address that Pittsburgh study, because it was one of the top 10 most cited articles in pediatrics for the decade. It uh, came out in um, 2005. Um, our uh, paper wasn't published till 2010, five years later, showing a decrease in mortality. But uh, what a lot of experts pointed to is that it was a small subset of patients uh, in their pediatric ICU in the first three months post-implementation where they saw this increase in mortality. And uh, what was written in that paper by the critical care crew at Pittsburgh Children's is that they were not allowed to enter orders prior to arrival of the patient because they weren't registering the patient until they physically arrived in the unit, right? And so you can imagine how that likely led to delays of, you know, life-saving vasoactive medications and the like, right? Mm. Um, now, they quickly changed and allowed pre-registration to occur so these orders could be placed and the medications could be delivered. Um, they also did some other kind of policy changes. They moved their critical care pharmacy off the unit at the same time they went live. So there were a host of factors that went into this. But we visited the Pittsburgh Children's uh, site. We visited Seattle Children's and other places that had gone live before us. We learned those lessons, and we allowed pre-registration prior to arrival. In fact, we even did that in the neonatal intensive care unit where we pre-registered um, uh, patients prior to delivery so that we could have all the medications ordered, you know, um, when the, the fetus. As soon as they were born, yeah. Exactly. And so I think there was a lot of learning, you know, um, across the, the country from this important sharing literature. So um, where are places that uh, electronic health records and similar technologies have made a difference? Well, first of all, um, certainly medication safety. I mean, the Institute of Medicine report in 1999 uh, to Air Human identified likely 100,000 deaths a year as a result of medication um, safety uh, um, harm. And that was extrapolation of David of uh, data that David Bates and, and others had published in the 90s about medication safety and medication harm. There's no doubt that um, CPOE or, or electronic physician order entry has decreased medication errors dramatically and reduced medication harm, though not as dramatically, because medication harm comes not just from the prescription step, but also from the mixing and administration step. Other technologies like um, bedside uh, barcoding and RFID 
have helped us to reduce medication administration errors. So we've seen an overall reduction in medication harm. Um, there's also uh, really important other benefits of digitizing the medical record. And so Harvey, you and I remember practicing an era where you know, you couldn't write an order unless you were at the bedside where the paper chart was. Uh, you sure. couldn't see the chart uh, unless you went down to medical records in the middle of the night and pulled their previous admissions, right? The ubiquitous access to information has undoubtedly changed the way that we care for patients. And in fact, I remember when we made a transition in our health record system um, at Stanford Children's in uh, 2012, the first time I was on service afterwards, I was seeing a um, five-month-old had been admitted to the hospital overnight. It was like a, a late uh, uh, I should say an early morning admission prior to rounds and, and the, res the residents had not yet finished kind of their full H&P. And so we're sitting at the bedside talking to the family. Turns out they're from North Carolina and this uh, five month old had had a seizure and, uh, you know, been admitted for further workup. And uh, normally we would have, uh, you know, said, well, uh, you know, where's the hospital that child was born? Can we get these records, you know, called and have a medical student fax them, et cetera. The family said, oh, you know, he was born in the small hospital, but we ended up getting some care at UNC Chapel Hill because he's got a hole in his heart. I was like, oh, really? And he says, yeah, you know, the family says he takes this Lasix. Um, uh, we don't really know what it's for, but it seems like he's doing fine. So we weren't getting a lot of uh, medical information from the family. But rather than spending the day getting records faxed from UNC, while we're standing there in room, we made this Care Everywhere connection. And about mm. 26 seconds later, I had not only the cardiac history, but the 22Q11 genetic testing that had been done and the most recent pediatric echocardiogram. And that totally changed the way we worked up this child with seizures because we now knew that this wasn't a DeGeorge system, you know, syndrome with electrolyte abnormalities. And having this access not only to prior you know, um, visits at our own health system, but outside information, that's been a... a just a game changer when it comes to caring for patients across the continuum. So lots and lots of benefits. Um, your last uh, you know, part of the question though is, well, what are some of the downsides? And we've got to acknowledge that. Like I'm not a defender of the EHR. There've been some significant downsides. Now, when we talk about physician burnout, mm. the EHR you know, may not be the primary source, but it's certainly become a symptom and emblematic of it, right? Oh. And uh, there's lots of contributors, uh, changes in compensation, changes in acuity of our patients, changes in productivity expectations of health systems and others. Um, but uh, the EHR seems to be an end result of all of that. I published a paper in 2019 where we looked at note length across uh, multiple different health systems in the United States and internationally. And you know what was really interesting is there's a bell curve in the U.S., and the median note length was 4,000 characters. Wow. People writing a novel, right? Or at least copy and pasting novels. <laughs> but the longest notes at international health systems were shorter than the shorter, shortest US notes, right? Their median length was like 800 to 1,200 uh, words. And, the, and, and um, they're all, and you're, all, you're talking about all places that are on the same same type of EHR gender. Right. That's right. It's a, a study we published in Annals Internal Medicine in 2019. It's called Physician Burnout. Uh, are we ignoring the real cause? Uh, and the implication of the study is one. that what's driving these long notes and documentation time in the EHR, it's not the software. It's the billing and compliance and medical legal requirements 
that we put on all of it. And so when CMS started their reducing, you know, paperwork burden uh, efforts, they actually cited the study and um, pointed to the fact that we need to roll back some of these excessive regulatory requirements that we put on all of our doctors. When I rounded in the hospital at uh, Melbourne, Australia, at Royal Melbourne Hospital, uh, using the same EHR vendor, their uh, intensivists are writing these like four and five sentence notes. You know, patient's doing well, consider extubation soon, um, will uh, consult cardiology for heart failure uh, symptoms, yada, yada. Um, they're not writing notes to support billing because they have a uh, system nationally that pays them for the care regardless of what they're documenting, right? And so we've got to think differently about um, our care notes and, and there's a lot of progress coming on that as well. No, that, that's really great. Um, unfortunately, since they've changed the, you know, the requirements on the inpatient and the outpatient side for the notes, we still haven't seen a reduction in the note length in in the U.S. Hopefully that may be coming and it's a little delayed. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, you have a unique background uh, and two unique titles now as the CMO and the chief digital officer. Um, are you the only position that has both of those in, in the country? Um, I haven't heard of too many that, that are in that sort of You know, now role. that you mentioned, I haven't either. Um, but tell us about <laughs> You know how your experience and in, in prior, you know, you know, in current work as a physician has informed both of those, and um, and what sort of things does that allow you to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a great question, Jake. Um, so, to my knowledge, I'm the only um, physician leader in the country with with these two titles, and you know, I've seen lots of lists of chief digital officers, and uh, obviously, if you've seen one CDO, you've seen one CDO, right? Um, the way that came about is, you know, I served for many years as CIO and associate chief medical officer, and that was a portfolio that was reasonable, uh, you know, with a great, you know, um, set of team members to, to manage. So our chief quality and patient safety officer here, Chad Van Denberg, is a wonderful guy, and um, he and I are in sync on a lot of our quality and safety efforts. And similarly, we've got three CMIOs, inpatient, ambulatory, and population health, and and, uh, you know, uh, that team is very uh, high functioning and high performing as well. Um, when the chief medical officer role opened up, um, I threw my name in the hat, um, but uh, a little bit reluctantly because uh, I knew that I couldn't serve as the CMO and the CIO. And yet that's a portfolio that I enjoyed. And so when it was offered to me, what I negotiated was um, that that portfolio would stay uh, as part of mine, rather than uh, the CIO reporting to the CEO, as I did, it was now reporting to me. And so um, that's part of the implication of the chief digital officer title is that unlike a lot of chief medical officers, I do have IT in the portfolio as well. The other piece of it, though, is that uh, we've now established a center for digital health innovation. And that center actually sits outside of uh, information services. Uh, IS is focused on meeting all the operational needs of the, the health system. Um, but there are a lot of other things that we can do to help both locally and nationally, and that's where our um, digital health center really sits. And so, so in the fall of 2020, when the pandemic was uh, at its height and Google and Apple had released this exposure notification technology, the state of California wasn't ready to turn it on statewide. But they allowed us at UC San Diego to do a pilot locally because we were bringing back more college students in the state of California, in uh, our college than any other in the state of California. And so it was an ideal kind of location for a natural experiment. My team helped to, to lead that. And so when the governor's office decided that uh, our pilot had been successful and we were ready to scale it across the state, 
our um, team locally here actually ended up with a contract supporting exposure notification at a statewide level. It's, it's the product now called CA Notify. And uh, we continue to this day to be uh, the lead on a lot of outcomes analysis. I can tell you we're preparing to publish some results that shows that we've helped to prevent hundreds of thousands of infections, thousands of hospitalizations, and likely hundreds of deaths with, with this technology. And so that's an example of a portfolio that doesn't belong in our information technology department for the health system, but it does belong in the digital health center. And so similarly, um, we undertook a pilot to uh, start remotely monitoring a thousand of our uh, patients in our accountable care organization. We're actually now up to 2,500 patients across our primary care practices with heart failure and diabetes and asthma. We use 13 different uh, devices. All of our device data is integrated into our electronic health record. We have a team in our population health services that actually um, uh, oversees all the remote monitoring data. We do home health nursing visits and even home uh, physician visits. And it's been extraordinarily um, successful in terms of helping us to improve quality, safety, and outcomes and uh, reduce costs just as we want to as an accountable care organization. So these type of kind of novel efforts that are not yet really proven, they'll take off in our Center for Digital Health um, before they're proven and, and handed to operations. And so um, I really enjoy that kind of alignment of the portfolio. And uh, we're just about to announce, uh, your, your audience will get a preview of a $20 million gift from a local philanthropist. And thanks to uh, the support of Joan and Erwin Jacobs, um, we're going to be expanding the center and uh, focused on developing a mission control uh, in our health system. So uh, think about a command center that looks like uh, NASA, you know, Apollo 11. And uh, this uh, physical location is going to be the site where we bring together our patient flow and population health teams and others to help more smartly manage uh, the care for our entire population across UC San Diego. And we'll be bringing in some novel technologies that our smart researchers and others, uh, industry partners are developing. I actually just got off a call this morning where we're looking at how we can use natural language processing and machine learning in partnership with Amazon Web Services to improve our identification of safety uh, risks and trends, uh, which of course, you know, in most institutions are free text, right? And so these type of um, side bets are really exciting. And yet we want to make sure they're solving operational problems. And so that's where having, you know, sort of the chief medical officer hat and the chief digital officer hat are, are really well aligned. Yeah, no, no, I spend a lot of my time trying to translate between IT and, and operations in the clinical side of the hat. It seems like by having it all under one individual, you're able to shorten that and, and really integrate and align, like you said. I was going to ask you, you know, we've we've seen a lot of paradigm shifts in uh, in, in medicine, you know, the and you talk about the paper to the EMR now virtual visits. What do you what's going to be the next big? Big paradigm shift and, you know, when it comes to technology and medicine, I mean, are we going to get to the point where machine learning and AI is going to be so good that you know, that that human human interaction is not going to be necessary for for all encounters. I'm just curious. That's a great question, Harvey. Um, you know, I, uh, at Stanford, uh, Abraham Verghese was on faculty. Right. And um, he's a, a big humanist, very focused on, you know, humanism and medicine. And I, I hope to hell that we never do eliminate that human interaction because that's part of the art of medicine and part of how we care for our fellow, you know, uh, humans, right? 
Um, my hope is that as we've now created this digital, Pros, we'll be yeah. able to use this with smart technologies to deliver more highly reliable care at every visit and continuously learn from the care that we're delivering so that we can shift from evidence-based practice to practice-based evidence, right? So if you imagine kind of the uh, the visits in the future, you know, you might come in for a multidisciplinary, you know, annual checkup, or even more frequently, you might get um, scans or mammograms, but rather than having a, you know, individual radiologists um, reading this, we're going to have AI-assisted uh, imaging that's going to help identify, you know, breast cancer uh, earlier than ever before, uh, combined with genomics risk, delivered back a personalized report, and uh, help to benchmark the types of outcomes that patients who are both genetically and phenotypically similar might expect to realize from different interventions. And then that informs a conversation that a human's gonna have with another human about how to select uh, you know, the best uh, treatment for them based on their values and what, what matters to them in life. Um, the electronic health record, you know, frankly, Arby, when we put this in, uh, in some ways it was a barrier to care more than it was an enabler of care. Sure. But um, we are, uh, I think, in the midst of a, a really exciting evolution where not only the EHR, but a lot of uh, surrounding tools, you know, AI-assisted imaging uh, in the genetic, in the uh, pathology, radiology, ophthalmology spaces, they're going to help us to do things we've never done before. Harvey, I know you said you're a general surgeon, and, you know, every year across the, the U.S., we have patients succumb to things like small bowel obstruction postoperatively that should have been identified, right? They were mm -hmm. diagnostic failures. So how do we um, use our data to um, help to identify things you know, earlier in the course so that we can intervene successfully. If I have to read another paper about, you know, how uh, somebody predicted sepsis using, you know, EHR data, I'm going to vomit because <laughs> most of those predictions are are useless. They're not timely enough. Like I remember reading a paper that like, you know, the presence of an order for lactate suggested, you know, uh, to the system, uh, a likely sepsis. Well, of course, the clinicians already thought about sepsis and is ordering yeah. lactate, right? Yeah. Um, but our thesis locally is that the EHR data is uh, necessary, but not sufficient. We're going to need multimodal um, sources in order to inform AI algorithms that are actually timely enough to um, intervene earlier. And so we just rolled out a sepsis algorithm locally, combining our EHR data with our bedside monitor real-time waveforms. And we think that that's going to help us to improve sepsis outcomes in a transformative way on top of the sepsis bottle and iterative kind of improvements that we've made. Another really cool thing about that that I'll just mention uh, um, quickly is that um, we also taught that sepsis algorithm how to say, I don't know. And that's really important. We know that physicians who are willing to say, I don't know, increase trust with their patients, right? And it turns out the same is true of algorithms. You know, this, this algorithm that kind of predicts sepsis, yes or no, uh, with certainty in every case, that's a, that's a false, you know, God, right? Um, we need to teach our AI algorithms how to demonstrate their level of certainty, right? I'm not uncertain. The... Um, Ability to say, I don't know, is a really, really important, um, I think, piece of this. And my colleagues, uh, Dr. Shamim Namadi, Gabe Ordi, and others um, published about this. Now, in contrast, everybody's playing around with ChatGPT. Uh, you know, ChatGPT can write your paper and ChatGPT can, you know, write your uh, grant uh, uh, request. 
But uh, unfortunately, what we're learning is that ChatGPT is also making stuff up. Yeah. In fact, not only is it making stuff up, it's making up citations for the stuff that it made up. Yeah, and so um, that's not going to be a, a good outcome. Even the founder of ChatGPT famously said back in December of 2022 that, you know, it was really exciting the potential that this created, but that it had a long way to go towards trust and truth before it could be used for serious endeavors. So if you think that the practice of medicine is a serious endeavor, ChatGPT is clearly not ready for that. Well, Chris, uh, man, this has been a great, a great discussion. Unfortunately, we, we're going to have to kind of end this. Uh, we could continue all day, but um, it really was good to talk to you. And, uh, you know, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much for uh, taking time out to uh, be our guest and to uh, inform our listeners. You know, I've learned a lot. Uh, Jake's probably hasn't learned as much as I have because he knows a whole lot more than I do. <laughs> but that, that's that not okay. true. It was a great conversation. You know, and I can't we can say that, you know, we we have spent time with the only chief digital officer and chief medical officer combined, uh, you know, in the country. And, and that's that's pretty cool. And I, I mean that in all seriousness. But uh, once again, thank you very much, uh, Chris. Well, I want to thank you both, Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Mason, for the, the time. And you guys are a dynamic duo. And uh uh, along with Skip Stewart, thanks uh, for the opportunity to, to participate. That was terrific. All righty.